0: This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy, the fisherman, the woodcarver, and the Southern Baptist, who always said the best cure for idle hands is to build something, so keep your hands sharp. The case knife.
1: Hey, you are listening to Sean of the i family. Your host tonight, Sean Dietrich,
0: and we are coming to you live through the podcast, airwaves, and the radio waves all over this fine nation. Man, we've got a great show lined up for you here. This wonderful group of family you see behind me here is the Sal family. The family, Sal, everybody. <laughs>
2: But it was- After church land
0: Our mail this evening, a little bit of our mail sent in to us from listeners just like yourself all over the nation. Who had nothing better to do than to string a few sentences together and tell us something nice uh, or a kind memory or something funny or a celebrated birthday or letters asking us to cease and desist <laughs> under further threat of legal pursuance. Our first letter comes from Andy Russell, Denison, Texas. Dear Sean, I wanted to thank you for making me laugh and smile again recently life events happened that really had me down the dumps I stumbled on your podcast one day and I had to listen it brought back childhood memories of riding with my granddaddy and listening to his favorite southern speaker the late great Jerry Clower your style and delivery and feel good and funny mixed in helped me realize that whatever happens is just a bump in the road and things will get better keep up the good work and thanks again P.S. My grandmother was the pound cake lady for our church. Lila, Athens, Alabama. Dear Sean, if you're ever in Athens, Alabama sometime in this neck of the woods, and you have some spare time to kill, I thought you might enjoy a short drive 20 miles west of Athens in Rogersville, Alabama. That is also the home of the Joe Wheeler State Park. The whole park is beautiful. But I recommend the day use area in the back corner, you will find Pavilion 3. And if you go straight down the hill, behind it you will see large rocks on the other side of a few cedar trees that sit just over the Tennessee River. Everyone in the area claims this spot and as their home, but they are silly, it is my spot. Well, actually, It was my son's spot. It was my oldest son's favorite fishing hole. He caught many catfish, bass, tree limbs, and his little brother there even, too, once. When he died in a car wreck at 17, his favorite fishing spot became my screaming rock. I've spent more hours on those rocks in the past 12 years than I could count. At times, I've washed them off more than the Tennessee River has, but they also bring me peace. Where I go, and I need to feel closer to him. If you hear anything, look up. It could be one of the bald eagles or a white pelican swimming by. Don't offer those guys in the air imitation crab mate. It seems to offend them. Thank you, sir. Safe travels and welcome to North Alabama. Your friend, Layla. Jenny Wallace, Detroit, Michigan. Hi, Sean. I'm not Southern, but here in Michigan, we have the same kind of people you often talk about. The church ladies, the church men, and all the town folks who make a life worth living. Of course, they're not in Detroit. They're in the small towns around Detroit, and I have been away from my hometown for a few years, living in the heart of Detroit, and I hate it here. I miss home, and I miss the quilt work of small-town living like you talk about. I just wanted to say that your show makes me feel like home. Keep up the good work. Your friend, Jenny. Alec G., Bolden Green, Kentucky. Reach not to say hello to my daughter while she's away on a youth group trip for the weekend. I don't know if she'll hear this while listening to your podcast in the church van with her friends, but I'm hoping she will. Mary, this is Dad. I love you. Be safe. And don't give the new youth group leader too much trouble. We don't want to scare this one away like we did the last one. (laughs) Thanks for reading my letter, Sean, your buddy, Alec. Dear Alec, no problem. Sally Anderson, Elko, Nevada. Elko, Nevada. Went to a birthday party this week and thought you'd like to hear about it. The woman there was turning 90 years old, and she was as fit as could be. She blew out all her own candles, and somehow, through a miracle still managed to keep her dentures in. (laughs) Afterward, I sat beside her, and I just basked in her wisdom. When you get to be a certain age, I guess you just quit caring about the fluff of life. And, Sean, I think that's a gift. This woman was wonderful. I'm 54, and I have a lot to learn about life. I hope I'm half as smart as Miss Eloise when I get older. Anyway, just wanted to send you a note, since you're always asking people at the end of your shows... To do such. Dear Sally, thank you for the note. Philip Sondheimer, Huntsville, Alabama. My son is turning 16, and we're going to spend a whole week fishing in the north on the rivers of Oregon and Washington and Montana. It's an expensive trip. We've rented a guide so that we know what we're doing. And we're so excited to be roughing it and learning how to cast fly rods. I've never done that kind of fishing before. I've always wanted to, but never never had the place to do it. I guess I've always just fished for bass and stuff in the lakes around my home. Wish my son a happy birthday if you would. His name is Donovan Sondheimer. Well, dear Donovan, your father must love you a whole lot to drop that kind of money on you. I can't even imagine what that costs. So happy birthday from everybody here tonight. Happy birthday, Donovan. Laura Stepnowski, Virginia Beach, Virginia. I don't know how to get her letter right over the air, but I figured I'd try. I want to be honest and tell you that I'm not having a very good year. Sometimes I wonder if anybody will ever love me. I'm 49 years old, and I'm still single after one nasty divorce, and I wonder if anybody will ever care for me the way a husband cares for a wife. I listen to your show And I hear these letters about love and such, and I listen to your stories, but I don't see any of that in real life. I don't want to be alone forever. Do you have any advice for someone like me? Dear Laura, I wish I did have advice, but I'm not as smart as maybe you you think I am, and I'm certainly not nearly as smart as I think I am. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this, and it might not be enough for you, but here goes. You are not nearly as alone as you think you are. And in the words of my 88-year-old friend, life gets so much easier when you finally give up. Joseph Waiterman, Sacramento, California. Sean, your cousin turned me on to your show and I've enjoyed it a lot since I started listening and I have a story for you I was in this old house once doing some renovations we were painting the walls and we'd moved all the furniture to the center of the room and covered it with drop cloth and this baseball fell off the dresser that was underneath the drop cloth while we were painting the walls and it rolled on the floor out from underneath the drop cloth to me and I bent down to pick it up and it was an old baseball autographed in brown ink. And the ink was hardly readable. It was so old. I took the ball to the owner and I showed it to him. And he told me a story about how his dad had gotten the ball signed by one of his favorite ball players in Ohio when he was a kid. Now, I have family in Ohio. And so I got the baseball player's name and wrote it down. And to make a long story short, do you know that the man who signed the baseball turned out to be the best friend of my great-grandfather in Ohio. How does something like this even happen? I'm in a world away from Ohio, and I find a connection with my family that is too uncanny to discount. I don't know what I believe about this world sometimes, but I have to say, I believe there is something big up there. I really do, and I thought you'd like that story. Thanks, Joe. Dear Joe, dear Joe, I would say I have to mirror your sentiments, even though I know less about life than most people. I do believe that there is something very, very big up there looking out for us. And that's letters from our listeners. We're going to have another tune here from the family style, everybody. I was in North Alabama a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I was on stage and I was delivering one of my, my stories to an audience of people who absolutely was humor impaired. No matter how hard I tried, they would not laugh a lot like, uh, a lot like being here tonight. Of course, the more you try to make somebody laugh. You know, the less they will laugh, it doesn't matter which jokes you pull out. You can pull out your best joke. They, they ain't going to laugh at it. But there was one boy, and he was on the, on the front row. He was an interesting boy. He smiled to the whole thing, and he had his eyes closed while I was talking. And he would laugh, and he would laugh so, so oddly and so strangely with this cackling voice that the people around him would kind of giggle at him. And then the people around them would giggle at the people laughing at the boy until the entire place was laughing. Of course, they weren't laughing at me. I could have been completely off the stage altogether. (laughs) But this boy, he carried so much So much enthusiasm in his laughter that it infected everybody else around him. And after the show was over, he came back to meet me backstage. I saw him coming. He had his mother with him and he shook his, he shook my hand, held his hand out and shook my hand like a full grown man. He said, I really enjoyed that. I'm learning how to play the guitar too. Do you have any tips? Because I play, I played a lot of guitar. I said, uh, well, one of my main tips is, Try not to to suck. <laughs> uh, this bit of advice comes down to me from my uncle John, who taught me how to play the guitar when I was a boy. He he taught me how to play the guitar, and we learned classics. That's what I told him. I wanted to learn classical music. He said, "What kind of classical music do I want to learn?" I said, "I don't know, just something you know that's that's beautiful and classical." He's, he took the guitar from me and he started playing. Your cheating heart oh, will make you, you. I said, Uncle John, that don't sound nothing like a classic. He said, If Hank Williams ain't a classic, then Jesus wasn't Jewish. <laughs> and so I learned how to play Ernest Tubb and, and Merle Haggard and Hank Williams and and all these kind of songs that were of my uncle's, and my father's generation. And I learned how to play them with my with my pick in my right hand and my fingers moving on the neck of my left hand. My first guitar that I learned how to play on was my father's guitar, the one you see right here on me. This guitar is a 1958 glorified piece of junk. It's not a very nice guitar he bought it when he was a boy because he had always wanted to learn how to play the guitar but he my father had a had a musical ineptness when it came to this instrument and so whenever he would try to position his fingers on the neck he would kind of hold his mouth funny and the tongue would be sticking out at the left side of his mouth and he'd try to form this c chord and he'd say Ugh, this hurts my hands my mother'd say you better put that tongue back in your mouth that's a bad habit you'll bite it off Father would try to play this chord, and it would come out sounding like just awful. And finally, he gave up, and so I inherited this this instrument. It fell to me; it became my my guitar. And during the beginning half of my life, I most mostly let this guitar sit in a large toy box down in my, in my room. It sat in this box, and it was littered with Tonka trucks and, and little tractor figurines and action figures and G.I. Joe dolls and tambourines and various things that children have, like cap guns and spurs that are made of plastic that would fit on my boots. And I learned how to play it, though, with Uncle John's guidance. And I, and I found out that I was pretty good. I mean, at least for, for a boy. And I would play music on this guitar for my father, and he, he seemed so impressed with me. And this was such an unusual feeling to feel because my father was very rarely impressed with me. I was a chubby child with red hair and skin that was so pale white that it looked like I was sick. I, I looked like the official spokesperson for Pillsbury. I was not a very good first baseman, I was not a very good football player, I tried out for the Wee football team exactly once, and that joker came across the field with his head low and he ran into me and I fell off my feet and hit that ground so hard, I looked up at the sky and I felt my lungs start to collapse, I said, I can't breathe. <laughs> my father came over and he did what all coaches have been doing since the beginning of time, a move that has never made any sense to me. He took me by the belt buckle and he lifted me above the ground and he just jingled me like a, like a set of jingle bells and said, Breathe, honey, breathe. And I mouthed to myself, that's what I'm trying to do. So I was not a good football player. I was not a good athlete. I was not a brilliant mind. I always believed in procrastination I still do believe that procrastination is a, is a skill that has eluded many of the, the good people in America. <laughs> oh, sure, society will praise the people who wake up early at 3 o'clock in the morning and they get out and clip down hedges. And they praise the people who go to work early and leave work late. But what about, what about the lazy man? <laughs> laziness to me is a virtue. Mediocrity follows after laziness, if you ask me. See, mediocrity frees you up a little bit. At least I've always believed that if you're, if you're not too good at something, then that leaves room for everybody else to exceed you, and that, that instills confidence in the human race. <laughs> and you can identify still with the people who are beneath you because, after all, being mediocre is, is, no, is easy. And so people who are beneath you can, can relate to this. People who are very, very good have to work very hard to keep being good, and so there's nothing easy about it, and thus they can relate to fewer and fewer people, the better and better they get. Well, I could relate to everybody, (laughs) but when I played the guitar, when I played the guitar, my father would look at me with eyes that were filled with some kind of wonder. It was almost like I was doing something that I'd been made to do, and I'd open my mouth to sing, and I'd sing songs that were from his generation, like, I tried so hard, my dear, to show that he o'er my every dream.
1: Yet he o'er afraid each thing I do is just some evil scheme. A memory from your broken past Keeps us so far apart Why can't I free your doubtful mind And melt your cold, cold heart? And my father would grin at me. He would grin
0: at me. And he would say, sing another one. And so I'd sing something from the
1: Cokesbury Hymn. Like what friend we have in Jesus, all our sin and grief he bear. My father would sing along with me.
0: And then he would start calling tunes from the Baptist way of life, tunes that deep water Baptists hold dear. And eventually, eventually we would always settle on the song, always settle on the song.
1: Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And my father would sing this as a duet with me.
0: He loved singing, even though he had a voice that wasn't all that good. He loved to sing. My mother said, whenever my father opened his mouth to sing, he sounded like a bloodhound with a chest cold. But it... (laughs) But it never inhibited him. And when I sang that song, Swing Low, he would sing with me, and he would do the call and response parts. That song has two parts.
1: I'd say, well, I looked over the mountain, and what did I see? My father would sing, coming forward to carry me
0: home. I would notice how our voices were just a little bit similar, except he sounded more like a bloodhound, and I sounded more like a, like a lopsops. We would sing, we would sing, my uncle's guitar chops would come through my fingers, and I would play these plunky chords, and my father would sing a song right along with me like, jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those bees? He would sing these, these wonderful songs like, I got rhythm, I got music, I got my girl who could ask for anything more. And well, I've always wondered how you could have rhythm and music and never ask for anything more, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, if I were on a desert island and I found a, a genie's lamp, and I rubbed the lamp and the genie came out and he crossed his arms and said, What shall it be? i would look at him and i would not say i've got rhythm i've got music i guess i'll just put you back in your little lamp <laughs> but these strange songs from my father's generation didn't have to make sense didn't have to make sense at all we'd sing together those are the memories i had playing guitar after my father died i decided i never wanted to play his rusted junky guitar ever again i put it away i left it in its case i put it away and it wasn't until i was 17 years old and my buddy chubbs asked if he could he could learn how to play the guitar asked if i knew how how he could do that and i said well you know I, i can't tell you how to do that i'm not all that good myself but i do have one that i want to get rid of he said really oh great i love i need a guitar I said, yeah, well, you know, if you're learning how to play the guitar, that certainly does help to have a guitar. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget. 17 years old, he, he told me to meet him at a bonfire party that was being held on the beach just on the shores of the Chocotachie Bay, just right near the Black Creek area. And I drove through the night. I looked in my rearview mirror, and I saw in that bed of my truck was that guitar in its case, that old guitar, that, that 1958 guitar my father had given me. I drove down this one dirt road that that led to nowhere. It led to the bay. And my one headlight on my my old truck was lighting up that road. It was almost Christmas time. And my bumper on my truck was not a bumper at all. It was made out of a two-by-four, and it was wrapped with colored Christmas lights. And I could see those Christmas lights kind of glowing on the ground drove up into this little parking area where all these trucks were kind of clumped together and Chubbs was standing out there he said hey do you have it do you have it I said yeah I got it I got it I said but do you have the cash he said of course I got the cash I'm good for it I said let me see the cash or we don't have a transaction he said man you you know someone ought to tell you that you ought to trust your fellow man a little more than you do I said I trust my fellow man but I do not trust anyone who goes by the name Chubbs Chubbs reached into his underpants and he dug way down into his drawers and he pulled out this wad of money that was soggy from sweat. I said, why are you keeping money in your, in your underpants? He said, well, it's a dangerous world out there. I said, I, I, I doubt here in the sticks of Walton County, Florida, Anybody's gonna attack you and, and remove your pants <laughs> and take your money. He said, You know what? You stick to your your life and I'll stick with mine. He said, every, every time you point a finger at somebody, you got four pointing right back at you. I said, You got that wrong. It's every time you point a finger at somebody, you got three pointing right back at you. I mean, gee, whiz, hold out your hand and look at your, your own hand for a second. He handed me that soggy wad of money and i handed him this guitar case And he looked at it and he squealed with joy and he opened it up and he lifted it out of that case he said oh man it's so old look at it it's cool i said yeah it's it's all right he said you sure you don't mind parting with with your old man's guitar i said it's fine just take it i don't i don't really want to see that thing anymore and so he held it up to his chest and he held his tongue out to the left side of his mouth and he concentrated real hard to form a chord and he, 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 he strummed a chord or two, he strummed it again and then he started singing and his voice carried through the night reminiscent of the, of the smooth crooning sounds of Elmer Fudd. He, he was not a talented guitarist nor a talented singer, but he tried. And he put the guitar back in its case, and we wandered toward that beach on the bay. And when we got there, teenagers were there by the dozens. They were all surrounding this huge bonfire that was blazing into the night. Sparks were flying upward into the night. And kids were sitting on logs, and they were acting out in ways that you could not act when your parents were near. They were they were being a little bit rebellious. They were using words that you wouldn't use when your parents were near, and they were sitting dangerously close to members of the opposite sex. Some of the people had slinked away from the glow of the fire into the darkness where they could, they could neck. That's what we used to call it. I don't know what the kids call it today, but we called it necking. And that is... It uh, was just another name for getting so close to the mem- a member of the opposite sex that the Southern Baptist Convention would excommunicate you. <laughs> and these kids were sitting around, and Chubbs took a seat next to another boy who was playing the guitar. And they started singing together. I could tell right away, 17 years old, I know, I know what was happening. Chubb was trying to impress this girl who was sitting next to him. She was uh, uh, on scholarship at UWF, a softball scholarship. She was tall and lean with black curly hair and, and a face with a little bit of freckles and blue eyes. She was way out of Chubbs' league. <laughs> but he was singing to her. He was singing the song, he was singing the song, Love on the Rocks. Ain't no big surprise. Pour me a few drinks, and I'll tell you a few lies. But he was singing to her, and while he played, I couldn't help but think that Chubbs played the guitar an awful like the sound of a chainsaw buzzing through a ukulele factory. (laughs) Cringe, cringing music. It made you, it made you want to plug your ears with whatever you could find napkins and old receipts that you had in your pockets you'd wad them up into small balls and just tuck them into your ears he played one song after another after another and i was sitting next to this girl she was a blonde and she was she was quiet she was watching him sing and she said my god he's bad i said ah he'll learn it just takes time I don't think he's all that bad She said he sounds like a diesel engine Warming up on a January morning <laughs> She laughed And Chubbs was singing a song About the Edmund Fitzgerald And he was trying his best To move his fingers in time And he was singing, he was singing Like a mixture between Bob Dylan And the sound of a, of a barge Coming into shore <laughs> When he finally petered out and he finally petered out. He stood up and he came toward me. He said, you play something, Sean. He said, I need to rest my voice. Professionals like me got to rest their voice. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, nah, I, I don't, uh, I'm fine. He said, oh, come on. I know you play. I've heard you play. He said, you might not be as good as me, but, but show some confidence. <laughs> I said, you know what? I really rather not. And while he held held that guitar up, I I was looking at it. I was looking at the, the neck of that guitar. And I realized something, that this neck had little thumbprints on it. And in those thumbprints where the finish had worn off was microscopic traces of the oil that used to be in my father's fingertips at one time. The oil from my father's hands was all over that neck. And the oil from my hands was on that neck and had worn off the finish. And there were scratches on the front of that guitar from my father's teenage years. And there was a chip missing from the from the sound hole. If you look real close, you can see it right here. It's missing from this, this sound hole. That's been gone since as long as I can remember. And these scratches right here on this part of the guitar are from when I fell down the staircase when I was nine years old. And I fell down with the guitar still being strapped to my chest i used to sit on the staircase in the stairwell and sing songs because i liked the way the acoustics sounded in the stairwell and when i fell down that that whole flight of stairs i came to and i realized the guitar was completely unharmed it was a miracle and so was i and i saw these these things like scars, battle scars on the wood of that instrument while my friend Chubbs held it up. And I I realized that I had sold it. I had let it go. And the girl looked at me. She said, oh, come on, play something. And when I looked at her, I realized that a man will do strange things when a woman who is beautiful looks at him just the right way. And I reached forward, and I got that guitar, and I held it on my lap and I tuned it a little bit. And, and the, the sound of the, of the kids who were sitting around the bonfire just kind of faded into to nothingness. And they looked at me. And I picked it up and I started playing.
1: Well, I looked at the door and and what did I see coming forward to carry me home bed of angels coming after me coming forth to carry me home swinging low sweet cheer coming forth to carry coming for to carry me on, but still my soul is heavenly.
0: Everybody was looking at me and I realized something. I realized that there were thin, hot streaks of water rolling down my cheeks. I felt so embarrassed. Jobs put his hand on my shoulder and said, Oh, don't cry. Don't cry. If you keep practicing one day, you'll probably be as good as me. <laughs> and I realized I couldn't sell this guitar. I could not get rid of it. So I reached into my pocket. I pulled out the money that was stained with the crock sweat from Chubbs. And I put it in his hand. And I said, I've changed my mind. Sometimes I think about how close I came to selling this thing. And sometimes I, I wonder what was going through my head. Sometimes memories, I guess, are too sharp. But every time I play it. I can still hear that voice of his ringing through the night. And if I close my eyes, I'm struck by something every time I hear the recollections of my father's voice. He sounds just like a bloodhound with a chest cold. Hey, thank you very much for having me here this evening. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um. Hey, thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host today, Sean Dietrich. And, man, it's been a bona fide pleasure, if I do say so myself. This episode was brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family, dating back to my granddaddy, who once said the best way to cure idle hands is to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a case knife and by Folklore Brewing Company, quite literally the best brew in Alabama. This year, Folklore won three gold medals and a silver at the Alabama State Craft Beer Championship. Do yourself a favor and visit Folklore Brewing in Maidry today. That music here remind me today was the Family Soul, a first-generation bluegrass family band based in Knoxville, Tennessee. They perform a variety of hardcore bluegrass and mainstream gospel music that'll make you stand up, stomp your feet, and ask for more. These guys aren't just good. These guys have more talent. To not be legal in the United States of America. Do yourself a favor and visit the Family Sowell, dot com and download a few of their albums. Today, you will not regret it. To find anything more about what I do, you can visit com, and there you can find archived episodes of our earliest episodes dating all the way to this episode, which you just heard. And while there, I hope you take the time to drop me a line tell me about your birthday announcements, wedding invitations, bar mitzvah invitations, church potluck socials, and ice cream parties, and I'll do my best to mention them over the air because I love to do that sort of stuff for my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, artificial intelligence is no match for just plain old common sense. Adios.